Hello, and welcome to the Community Colleges Australia podcast. I'm Emma Lancaster. You're listening to the first episode in a six-part series on governance and business management for -for not-for-profit community education providers. In this episode, we talk about the need for appropriate governance and what this governance looks like in a modern boardroom, how to recruit a diverse board and onboarding tips, as well as issues around staff members sitting on the board. We hear from Patricia Carroll, the CEO of St George and Sutherland Community College, SGSCC, and we are joined by the sector leader for not-for-profits at the Australian Institute of Company Directors, Phil Butler, who walks us through some of the key not-for-profit governance principles that have been developed by the AICD as part of the organisation's commitment to promote good governance in the not-for-profit sector. Phil Butler is based out of the Canberra office and took time out of his busy schedule to speak to CCA on the phone. I'm the not-for-profit sector leader with the Institute of Company Directors. We're a membership-based organisation of about 45,000 members. Phil, the not-for-profit sector has experienced significant regulatory reform and disruption. And I think in the recent years, there's been a lot of attention paid to the governance of not-for-profits and the role of good corporate governance plays in maintaining the community's trust and in preventing misconduct. So do you think it's fair to say that good governance has never been more important? I think governance has never been more in the spotlight than it's been in the last couple of years and certainly the various royal commissions, starting with the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, current Royal Commission into Aged Care and the Financial Services Royal Commission, has really heightened the public's awareness of corporate governance and the need for appropriate governance of organisations. So then given that, what do you think are the most important principles for good corporate governance in that not-for-profit sector? We've recently put out the second version of the not-for-profit governance principles was a revision of the principles from 2013. We have 10 principles again, and my firm belief is that there is no single one most important principle. But I will start with principle number one, which is around purpose and strategy. It's ensuring that there's a really clear understanding of why does the organisation exist what it's trying to achieve, and then how is it going to achieve it through the strategy or strategies it puts in place. But that continual focus on the purpose of the organisation, understanding what the purpose is, and indeed knowing when you may have achieved that purpose and what's the next step once you have achieved that purpose. So, Phil, when it comes to a new board, what do you suggest a a new board should focus on? Is there any key principles that they should be locking in straight away? Yeah, in terms of a a new board for an organisation, getting the compliance elements right, and these are the the areas that, that aren't particularly enjoyable or exciting, but you do need to get it right. So, understanding what your legislative framework is, understanding who you're reporting to. Um, As a charity, you'll be reporting into the ACNC, 
that you may also be reporting into a state-based regulator. If you're in education, there may be a whole range of other regulators who are going to be interested in what you do and you will need to be reporting to them. Great. Now, you mentioned, uh, obviously, those not-for-profit governance principles, uh, how they've been developed by the Australian Institute of Company Directors, the AICD, as part of its commitment to promote good governance in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, So you you mentioned just before that you released the second edition of the principles, I think it was in January of this year. I'm I'm keen to uh, get your thoughts, Phil, on what the changes were and and also why those changes came about. As you point out, AICD's purpose is to strengthen society through world-class governance and the not-for-profit sector sits fairly and squarely as part of Uh, the community without a well-governed not-for-profit sector our society won't function uh, properly so we've had a real desire to keep building on our work in the uh, not-for-profit sector there's nothing wrong with the uh, the version of principles from 2013 but we believe that there had been quite a bit move on since they had been first introduced we've seen the various royal commissions. We've seen an increased focus from the introduction of the Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission. But I think we've also seen the changes happening across the not-for-profit sector, the introduction of the NDIS, the introduction of client-directed care in aged care and other areas. have seen not-for-profit organisations continue to evolve and nothing stays the same while much does change. There's uh, some things that uh, uh, fit fundamentally as uh, as components of good government. So what we've tried to do with these principles is ensure we've kept all of the important uh, basics and background in there, but we have introduced some more guidance with regard to what appropriate governance, and it's a note that I haven't used the word good governance. There is such a diverse range of organisations across the not-for-profit sector. What is appropriate governance for one won't necessarily be appropriate for another. So we're very mindful to use that word of appropriate rather than good or bad. So in terms of uh, what we've also included in there is that additional commentary, some guidelines about what might constitute appropriate governance we introduced also a couple of case studies, one for a smaller type of organisation with a single uh, purpose and range of activities, another case study which is of a larger organisation with a whole lot of different projects and for each of the principles there's some illustrations we've brought out of those case studies about how those different types of organisations might approach culture or stakeholder engagement or risk management or whatever the principle might be. How then do you think community colleges and the adult education sector can ensure good corporate governance when it comes to having perhaps limited access to board members? Board members may not be as available as um, as some CEOs would like or some chairs would like. How do we get around this and, and what would you suggest? Board succession planning 
remain such a critical role for organisations and indeed boards to do. To get that succession planning right is uh, just so important because this is a long-haul game. Uh, most organisations are going to be around for many years to come um, trying to achieve um, those really important things for our society. So my observation is making sure that your own current governance is uh, as uh, appropriate as it can be so that people will be attracted to the organisation. And then it's getting a sense of, well, what are the skill sets we require for the next phase of the organisation? And be realistic about what those skill sets are. And then think about, well, where can we draw those skill sets from? And I think one of the traps that people often fall into is just going back to the same pool of potential directors each time without thinking a little bit more outside of the square about where future directors may come from. Important in that is to think about the diversity of the stakeholders and customers that are being looked after by the organisation. If it's in adult education, you've probably got a very diverse group of students. How do you think that that diversity can be reflected on the board. And by that, I don't mean a tokenistic way. Diversity in thinking is probably the most important part that I see coming out and one that often boards will struggle with, this real concept of diverse thinking so that people are thinking in very, very different ways about particular issues. So I'm keen now to get your thoughts on what you think. What's your position regarding staff sitting on boards? How how do you feel about that? Yeah, I've got to be really careful with this answer um, because what I think um, is that where possible to keep separate the board and executive roles is a better outcome. The reason I said I needed to be careful that because, of course, at AICD, so my organisation, our CEO does sit on the board. He's the managing director as well as being the CEO. Uh, and our organisation has, organisation has done very well over the years using that model. But my preference is that, in fact, you have those as separate uh, roles, that you have the board who uh, hires the CEO, the CEO probably attends most of the board meeting, apart from, you know, there might be some very small sections that are done uh, in camera, but the CEO does not sit on the board itself. And um, what, are, what are the reasons for this or what are some of the arguments as to why that's best practice? My observation is that one of the great challenges that uh, not-for-profits face is this delineation between uh, governance and management. And this, I think, is more difficult 
than often in for-profit organisations. And it comes back a little bit to the passion that people bring to not-for-profits. My observation is often that the not-for-profit sector is very fortunate that it has people with a great deal of passion that they bring to the organisation. But that's also one of its downsides, that that passion can also lead to some decision-making that's not as uh, as good. So it's for that reason that I think it's better that you have a board, you've got an executive or a general manager who reports into that board, and that way the board can be very clear about the delegations that they give to management, but they can also have conversations at a board table without management being around. So I think there is a real value there in that clear delineation between board and management, and it makes that easier to manage at a board level. That was Phil Butler, the sector leader for -for not-for-profits at the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Now we're going to hear from Patricia Carroll, who has extensive experience in the adult education sector, As CEO of St George and Sutherland Community College, she's seen numerous changes in the industry. She shares her insights and practical tips on corporate governance with a busy and time-poor board, ideas on how to recruit a diverse board, and her own personal views regarding staff members sitting on the board. My name is Patricia Carroll. I'm the CEO of St George and Sutherland Community College. Patricia, how do you ensure good corporate governance when you have limited access to board members. And by limited access, I mean, you know, your board members are busy and it's more about availability. Yes, I understand that that's a big problem. My take on things is that on the practical side, it's always better to have meetings at night. I know that a number of colleges do prefer to meet during the day, but I do find that um, busy people can come on their way home from work and they can find time in their diary much more than uh, people who um, are expected to come during the day. Otherwise, you probably end up with a number of retirees that might want to come rather than people who are active currently in their profession. So apart from the actual timing, which is the most obvious, I think, I think it's important to have quite a number of board-related policies and procedures We tend to specialise in most organisations in the policies and procedures for the actual running or the management of the organisation. But um, in our case, we've noticed that we need a number of good policies and procedures for the board so that, for example, even with having evening meetings, sometimes we're struggling for a quorum. So, for example, we have a policy around our quorum that if we don't get at least three people attending the meeting, what we do is we discuss the particular issue, we come up with a decision that sits well with the three, Uh, we then release that by way of email. We insist that everybody has an email who is a board member. So we get them to look at the decision that we've made and if we don't hear back from them within a two-week period, Uh, to the contrary of the decision that we've tentatively made, we then codify, um, put in cement, the actual decision, 
and then we make sure it's minuted at the next formal meeting where we have a quorum. So that means that you're making it a little bit easier and Steve Bowman, who's one of the best governance um, lecturers that I've ever experienced, who does a lot of work for the Institute of Company Directors, says that the best thing you can do is to say to yourself, what if it's easy? If you're making things too hard for yourself, it becomes impossible. So governance, yes, it's got to be precise, but try and make it easy and make it practical. So that's one very important way to have some solution for quorums, which can often uh, really daunt us. The other thing is having, as I mentioned before, lots of processes around uh, and delegations around finance so that, for example, if there's a request to buy some new piece of equipment which is over the delegations of the, uh, the principal, then you need policies and procedures in place as to how that can be conducted. And again, if we've got a quorum, as a, if we don't have a quorum, we go through the same process and the three people will agree to the expenditure. And if there's any a major problem by anyone else, we need to hear about that. Otherwise, we, if it's an important, urgent purchase, we're not held up. So again, it's what if it's easy, keeping it easy. Great. Um, now, you've mentioned some already, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what you think are some innovative and practical ways to ensure best practice corporate governance for your organisation. Um, this is where I become a little controversial, probably too early in the podcast, but um, I have attended um, lots of corporate um, governance training over the uh, years, and the most sound, apart from Steve Bowman, um, was conducted by Sally Saunders from the UTS. I'm not sure if she's still there. Um, and she actually supported my particular stance that we have here, that the CEO is a fully voting member of the board, equally responsible um, from the point of view of the conduct of business and of the finances, equally um, liable should the wrong thing be done, and I think that's probably the best insurance that um, board members can have. If my neck is on the chopping block, if I make the wrong decisions or don't do the right thing, then I'm as liable as they are. And I think it's a very wrong thing to ask willing people to come in and take responsibility fiscally if the CEO is not also fiscally responsible. So it's more of a probably a corporate governance model than a uh, not-for-profit model. But I do think, especially when we don't always have access to board members and their decisions, I think this is the best insurance that we can give to our board that things are being conducted correctly. That's currently out of step with what most organisations are doing. So what's the argument for the way they're doing it now? I think the argument is that, well, you know, we're only small organisations in many respects and we wouldn't get people working in regions if they were going to be fiscally responsible. But I still think it's worthwhile holding out for that person who is confident enough that they can lead the organisation and be fiscally responsible as well. 
And sooner or later, you know, everybody could be sued for negligence. So you may as well, you know, have your CEO already taking part and making sure that the board is fully informed and that the individual CEO is confident in what's happening when the board is not around to watch. So speaking of who it is that actually sits on boards and who you get to sit on your board, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on staff sitting on the board. Do you have examples of when it's worked, perhaps when it's not worked? And um, is there a conflict in them sitting on the board? It's a no-no from my point of view. Early in the days of the college where we, um, we had to follow a model constitution, and I'm talking way back in the 80s, it was suggested that we have staff sitting on the board. And we were lucky in those days. Um, but my own feeling is that it just goes against the whole ease of reporting in the situation that if you have someone on the board and you're not an equal voting member of the board, you technically have someone working for you who you're reporting to on the board. And I just think that is a nonsense and it's going to cause all sorts of conflicts with that person exercising uh, perhaps too much power. These sorts of things are just going to create a level of trouble that isn't required. Now, how then do you ensure you're recruiting the best people for your board? It's not anything other than a normal recruitment in the sense that uh, what I've found to be really helpful over the years, except if someone comes across uh, my desk or my experience, if I'm on a board and I see someone who's wonderful, for example, from the council, we have um, over the years had some wonderful people because I've been on different advisory boards for the councils in the area. I've seen some very passionate people and I thought they'd work really well on the board and they've been kind enough to come on, not forever, but come in and come out for a very good quality time. But mostly my recruiting has been conducted by my going around to the um, the actual classes. And if I'm really desperate, almost crying, <laughs> that that's worked for me over the time. We are desperate, please, we need board members. Also uh, appealing to women because there are not a lot of women as we know still who have seats on boards. Um, We have a high proportion of women who are our consumers so why shouldn't they also be our board members? So that's been a real winner from the point of view of getting people and really good people on board and we've had parents of our people with disabilities who come um, for our courses and activities, and they've made wonderful, passionate board members. Um, We've given them a little bit of training on the um, financial side of things, and they've just been absolute winners on the board. So, and I think it's it's one of the reasons why we've been a dynamic organisation, because we have stakeholders as prominent board members. You spoke about the great female representation that you have on your board. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on how you ensure you're attracting diversity to your board. So obviously, female representation is one aspect of that. What else are you doing? Um, Because we, uh, especially on the um, northern end of our endeavours, we have a high migrant population. So we try to make sure that we've got some people with um, diverse language backgrounds. Uh, We usually ask when people apply, we don't automatically take people because they put their hand up when I come round to the class. We ask them to submit a brief CV um, and in the background we've already established that uh, we would like to have a diversity of age groups. We've actually had a couple of university students 
over the years who've really relished the, the experience of being a board member, you know, before they've even finished their studies. So to have some young people, some older people, some retired people, we've had ex-company secretaries, we've had ex-CEOs, we've had mothers at home who relish an opportunity to use any corporate experience they might have let lie for a while. So we always try and make sure that we've got, you know, generational gender and ethnicity diversity. That was Patricia Carroll from St George and Sutherland Community College. This series is produced for Community Colleges Australia by Heaps Good Media, engineered by Miles Martignoni and produced and presented by me, Emma Lancaster. This podcast has been produced with funding from the New South Wales Department of Industry to assist leadership capabilities of not-for-profit community education providers. On the next episode of this CCA podcast, we look at what it takes to build a successful mentoring program. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more, visit cca.edu.au.